This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Donald Hyman, who brings history to life by portraying people from the past. A world traveler, he embraces all history. Travel, he says, keeps you from being brainwashed. A teacher, Hyman says, he can quiet his students and inspire their wonder by telling them how in New Orleans people are buried above ground. Hyman likens what he does now to prospectors who pan for gold, sifting through the debris to find the nuggets. Rather than celebrating baseball players or rappers, he likes to portray individuals who prevailed and overcame. In Jamaica, Hyman said, they would say of these individuals, they overstood. So I would like to hear just a little bit about these three people that you're going to be educating us on. And I know they were all African-Americans, and I know they lived in the late 19th century in our area, but I'm ashamed to tell you, I know absolutely nothing else about them. So if you could just tell us a little about Adam Blake Jr. to start with. Um. Let's do it this way. Uh, in response to what you just said, I think that um, you do know about them. They're just not household names. So their legacy is is really um, kind of more important than just their, their name on the product. In this case, um, the symbolism of it is that because of their contributions to this particular area, um, I... I decided to uh, was invited to, to to do a reenactment of them. And uh, for example, you may not know Adam Blake Jr., but you know the Kenmore Hotel on Pearl. Am I correct? Uh, you are correct. Yes. Well, that's the gentleman that built it back in the in the in the uh, in the late nineteenth uh, century. You may not know the name James Matthews, but he was a, a a judge. And are you familiar with Albany Law School? Of course. He was a, he went to Albany Law School and he was the uh, first African American to um, graduate from that school and one of the uh, first uh, African American judges in uh, New York State, I believe, as well as in the United States. So you are familiar with his legacy would be contributed to Albany Law School. Uh, our friend Mr. Blake, his his, his legacy is the Kenmore Hotel, which prior to the Kenmore Hotel he had. Um, uh, uh, a capital uh, N in front of the, what's known as the Capitol now that, that, that we know that little park in front of um, where the Capitol is mm-hmm. in Albany, where that park is in front of it. That's where he had his, his hotel and business and people like uh, Charles Dickens stayed there. That's how prominent he was. So uh, for about 20 years, that was the place to be when you came to Albany with the who's who, the skulls and the, you, you name it. He, he just ran a, a tight ship. And as then well as Jay- the third James one, Dixon. yeah, we had just done a story two weeks ago on the burial, the the vault where the Slingerland family is buried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, tell us about James Dixon. J- James Dixon uh, in the late 19th century was uh, the, uh, the, t- the caretaker for the estate. Um, he, he received a certain uh, an endowment from uh, Mr. Slingerland himself. He married one of the local girl, local women in the area, and um, 
there are newspaper articles about him. Uh, he was such a, a fixture in the community that um, when they had a, a massive snowstorm and blizzard, he got the machine and cleaned the area up so that people could, could be able to get back and forth through the area, you know? So it's, uh, how can I put it? These people left an indelible mark in the community. They weren't looking for fame and fortune. Well, let's put it this way. They wanted success. But their legacy, perhaps, uh, didn't get stamped on the national papers or whatever. Um, so within their community, their communities, which is us, they made an, an indelible mark. And uh, some of what they did still stands today. Slingland still stands. Um uh, the Albany Law School has a uh, scholarship program named after James Matthews. And um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I did a program in honor of him at the uh, Old Institute of History Art a few years ago. And the African-American students there have uh, a club named after him. And they uh, about nine of them came uh, to, to, to receive the presentation. You know, so that's important to me, especially when I go to Clinton Avenue and Henry Johnson Boulevard, and the house he lived in is still there. Okay, mm-hmm. so this meant, so the, the legacies in terms of what these people were doing in the community uh, were profound and prolific, and they're not household names, but what their work stands for itself, very much so. So, how did you? Oh, look, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off. No, go ahead. I, it come, they all come back to me like I'm listening to the lyrics to a song. Uh, Mr. Matthews was helpful in, in getting the, the, the Albany City School District uh, desegregated. Uh, he represented William Dietz. Another name that I'll probably bring up, William Dietz was an inventor uh, here in Albany that did something with one of the one of the, the, the bridges, if I'm not mistaken, and had a patent on uh, making ladies' boots more comfortable, uh, you know. <laughs> so uh, you, you, these people are there. They exist. They may not be household names, but they make some significant... Uh, contributions. So your your question, I don't mean to cut you off. No, that's fine. You have so much, such a wealth of information just at, at your fingertips. I'm wondering, how did you amass this? How do you research these characters? And what is it like for you to become them, to portray them? Just tell us a little about that whole process. That that comes with um, years of being able to do do uh, historical reenactors and characters, as, as well as, as, as being an actor myself. Um, I've acted off Broadway. Um, I've done several plays uh, from a historical point of view. Um, you You find out one thing is that these particular people, to give them a voice, I try to find uh, in their own words things that they would say, or who they were, and and you have to be very careful. And it's very, it's very, it's almost like I can't make. It's almost like being a coffee taster or wine taster. Does it make sense to you? It does make sense. Okay, it, it's coffee, but you got three different kinds of coffee. You got hazelnut, you got um, French vanilla. Okay. Uh-huh. And you got Colombian and they're all coffee. But if you taste each one, you can tell a little bit of the difference. Right. I have to find the difference so that when you see me, if you see me do James Matthews or you see me do um, James Dixon, I have to find out the idiosyncrasies about that person. Were they left handed? Did they have a limp? You know, that would make them a little bit more real. All right. Uh, was he married? Did he have children? Was he older? 
Um, and the little bitty stories, idiosyncrasies of facts about them make them a little bit more interesting. Um, Blake's, Blake is a businessman, you know, and also um, very sharp, you know. Um, I, 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 I sort of made James Dixon more of a, a, tit, a, tit, a tidbit more humorous than the other characters in the sense that I saw him as being a part of the community and working with people and getting along, mm-hmm. you know, so he wasn't like nose to the grindstone. Uh, Judge James Matthews, you know, he had to be a little bit more um, uh, disciplined and ordered, you know, uh, but underneath that is, is, is a, a, a lot of wisdom and understanding, but, but persistent. So I have to be able to like say, uh, yes, I may be the first uh, African-American to go over to law school, but I'm here because I had the, the, the talent to get in here. So I'm not trying to prove this to anybody else uh, because I have the credentials and what it takes to get me here. So there's not, there's, it's not, I'm, I'm not insecure as a result of being here. Um, becoming the first judge in New York state, uh, African-American judge. Okay. Uh, I had the qualifications and I had the credentials to be here and be a judge. So the confidence overrides the insecurity and to be put on the pedestal to say I'm the first is not as important as the fact that I can do this. For example, how can I put it? Uh, if I can fly a plane because I know how to fly a plane, I don't know how it's me down the line. I don't know how to fly a plane. I don't know about you, Melissa. Can you fly a plane? I cannot fly a plane. Okay. So as a person who's learned and has that skill, uh, that, that gives me some confidence in terms of who I am. Right. Not the, the, the political part of who, who someone else wants me to be, you know. Uh, so um, I'm not letting someone set my humanity uh, within a bar. That, you know, oh, you, you can actually do that. Then I would be I would be uh, co-signing their BS. And that's not what these gentlemen were, were doing. They knew that they could do it. They knew that, they, that, that if the door were open, they would definitely go through it. Some of the doors were closed and they were just waiting for the opportunity to, 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 to get into them. And not only did they do them, um, somebody like Adam Blake, um, he, he wanted to build the best hotel in the world. He started out working at the American Hotel as a busboy, you know, doing uh, waiter stuff. And he, he worked his way up. He learned the American Hotel on Broadway. Uh, he learned that was like he didn't go to, to college, but that was a university to him. He studied how the cooks and the waiters, how all of that was uh, the symbiotic relationship, how intertwined, how the relationship between the cooks and the waiters and the busboys and, and the clerks, how they had to have a, a, a type of relationship with, with the customers. Or, or, you know, I, I call him the ultimate uh, customer service person, you know, mm. because from, from many, many waiters have to know the psychology of a person that comes in that restaurant because you want them to be happy. You want them to be pleased and to have to, to be able to be um, perceptive like that takes a certain type of individual. And then to take um, to see yourself uh, not doing that forever. But for, how can I put it with Adam Blake? His thing was. It's, it's better to have a hole in the wall of your own than to live in another man's mansion. So he was constantly moving up. And, and, and as I said in one of, in one of my um, 
interviews, when he built the Kenmore Hotel, if he had lived another 20 years, you might have had a Kenmore on Fifth Avenue or something even grander in um, Albany because he was going in that direction. And if he could have found a way to top that, he would have topped that. And I believe if he had been here, he would have. So it seems like you have a deep and intimate knowledge of these men that you're portraying. Did you come to know them through reading about them, or is it just your own? Uh... I, I, there's various there's various materials uh, that are available out here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I I did some um, stuff that I, I researched online mm-hmm. uh, from various sources and. From that, I was able, I had to compare various information I got. Uh, for example, with James Dixon, the people in Slingerlands gave me information about different things that he did. You know, um, the, the, uh, the money, that, the endowment that he received from Mr. Slingerland. So I had, to, I had to put that into facts that I get about these people. I, I can then kind of put together a... Um, a, uh, a monologue, a skit to sort of tell you about who they were and what they were and what they did in, in, in a nice way. So there's a lot more uh, that I'd like to find out about these people. Um, for example, with Adam, with Adam Blake, the, the key to him was to me was definitely was his father. You know, his fa- he was he was his father um, worked for the Van Renslers and. Um, that connection helped Adam Blake. Adam Blake Jr., Adam Blake Sr., was very prominent in the community. He was an abolitionist. Um, he, um, when when General Lafayette came to town, he was in the parade carrying the umbrella for him. You know, and and so these gentlemen, um, uh, Adam Blake Jr. is is born into a world. Say, for example, if I was uh, Duke Ellington's child. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be, I would be given a certain I was already be born into a Brahmin class. And based upon my personality, it would be up to me to take that opportunity and run with it. And I will say <laughs> in no uncertain terms that Adam Blake run, run with it. He, 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 he was like a speed racer with it. He went all the way. But but all of that helped all of those connections from the beginning. You know, he was kind of born inside that track and he didn't have to try to get inside, you know, inside that track. So um, there's the, the New York State Library has various information on these people. And um, the, the kind of, I like to look for letters and primary documents and church records. For example, I found out Adam Blue Jr. Um, there was some type of memorial done for him at uh, Israel, Amy Church. Hmm. You, familiar, you familiar with First Israel Amy Church in Albany? Mm-hmm. And there, we found that there's there's uh, some stained glass windows that are there that are dedicated to him, which I didn't know, uh, which which fascinated me because I've gone to Israel several times. I've sang with the uh, the men's chorus there. I've been invited as a as a guest soloist, so I'm familiar with all of it. I'm looking around, and I'm seeing, and when they show me which one it was, I'm like, oh, who knew? You know, and I, I, I guarantee most of the people probably that go there don't really know the connection. But Adam Adam Blake, I believe it was called the Human Rights League. He was the treasurer for that during his time. And I, in doing my research, I found out that he was highly regarded in the um, African American community here. So, a, a lot of a lot of what we have to have to look at it is 
here's a question. Was there an African community, African-American community here in the capital region? And I'm finding out, yes, there very much so was. And um, the fact that you have churches like First Israel, um, Morningstar, okay? Um, there's one in Schenectady, um, Jurie AME Church in, 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 in Schenectady, they go, they go back. And they, they, they have kind of like an idea of you want to find out what was going on in that community. Uh, you could probably get it from there because a lot of the other stuff is lost. Unless, unless you, you research some of the Times Junior papers and stuff comes up. Like I have a friend of mine that does Moses Viney in Schenectady or Walter Semkins. Mm-hmm. And Moses Viney was connected with Union College, Elias Nuffet. Is that if I pronounce it correctly? The president of Union College, and he left him a certain amount of money, and when he passed away, and he opened up like a carriage service, and the land that he lived on, when he died, he left it to the Salvation Army, and guess what's on that land right now? I have no idea. Proctor's Theater. Oh my gosh! Well, I know. Okay. So- I know Paul and, and Liz Stewart have done a lot of work in Albany, you know, around they oh, have yeah. the um, Underground Railroad House that I've visited many times. And um, they've done a lot to put together the local history of the African-American community. But I'm just interested in you as a person. You keep mentioning these various talents you have, a soloist, um, you know, performing in Israel, did you say? Um, Israel Israel AME Church. Oh, at the Israel AME Church. Okay, but still. On Hamilton Street in Albany. I know, yes, okay. But still, I know that you're about to do a presentation also on the Harlem Renaissance for the Albany Institute of History and Art. It's called, it's not the Harlem Renaissance. It's it's about uh, Harlem in vogue, the fashion scene during the 20s and 30s in Harlem. The, 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 um, Roaring Twenties is known as the Jazz Age. Mm-hmm. And what you're forgetting is uh, Harlem is where the jazz scene is really happening. You know, uh, the, all of the blues singers go through the, the Ethel Waters, the Billie Holiday, the Bessie Smiths, Louis Armstrongs. And it's like the dance capital of the world. Uh, the, the, the dance during the Twenties for everybody in the nation and around the world is the what? The Charleston, right? Mm-hmm. James P. Johnson, the piano player, lives in Harlem, and this is the dance that they do. Remember, uh, people forget that Harlem is Harlem in the twenties and thirties is the place where all the celebrities. I have pictures of Joe DiMaggio and, and Marlena Dietrich sitting in the Cotton Club on 142nd Street and Lenox, Lenox Avenue in Harlem, where you could smell the collard greens and, and the fried chicken around the corner. It, it's 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 in the heart of the black community, and um, that is, is, is important to note that because they'll tell you that during that time period, that's where everybody went. And I have a map of all the clubs and then the speakeasies that are loaded in that area. So it's the more popular, more popular than, say, Times Square for people to go and hang out during during that time period, the 20s. So the fashion that people are wear, you have two types, the types of people that are entertainers like Bessie Smith and the Blue Singers, they're going to be grand, the Josephine Bakers. The hairstyle, uh, the finger waves, uh, very popular with African-American women and, you know, it carries over. Um, the, 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 the bar that was set during that time period never really came down. Um, the people that 
that were prominent during that time period, they had a standard and they were trying to do this. I and mean, you can quote me on this because I'm quoting a professor of mine that I had, Dr. Scott Kennedy. He referred to it as the saturated image and the oppressed. During the 1920s, people that migrated to New York City and Chicago and Harlem, you know, that was from the South and from the Caribbean and whatever. That was the modern time. That was the, the new age. That was the new age for women. They had the vote and, and, and certain freedoms and stuff. So they, they didn't look at uh, uh, the, the society that had uh, marked them as being uh, um, butlers and aides and mammies. And, you know, there was a terrible uh, dis, uh, communication in terms of image during those time periods that was done in the press uh, through menstrual shows in vaudeville. You, do you know that at one point to go on stage as an uh, 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 African-American actor, you had to put on blackface? Did you know that? I did not know that, no. Yeah, can you imagine that? You have to get the cork and blacken up and go on because of those menstrual shows. And this goes into the 20s and 30s, okay? Um, so changing all of that, uh, changing that image uh, that that you know the the broken English and the, the the caricatures and the you know was something that people during the Harlem Renaissance they wanted to get away from. They wanted to show the art, they wanted to show the high culture. Uh, all of these things uh, left the lasting imprint. It's almost like when it was rediscovered in the seventies. It was like somebody had gone to Egypt and found the pyramids under the sand. <laughs> Because these people left books, they left music. Well, the music you could kind of hear because the Duke Ellingtons and the Cab Calloways and the, the, the Bessie Smiths, their, their music kind of was popular. But the other stuff that had been done, like the, the theater and the poetry, you know, the, James Vanderzee, are you familiar with him? I'm not. He was a photographer that photographed from like um, the 20s all the way to the 70s. And his stuff was kind of like in a basement in a vault when they found it. It didn't show the ghetto slum um, addicts and, and thieves that, that the murderers that you get the impression that Harlem is. It showed grand people dressed to the nines, uh, formal affairs, you know, the children, uh, uh, the celebrities, the, the regular people on a regular day. Uh, there was a certain amount of what I call in, my, in this upcoming show, dignity elegance and style. And that particular seed that was planted in Harlem never, never, ever, ever really left it. There was always that um, thing about looking good and doing good in the community amongst people, uh, which is why you got in the 1950s, um, some of the most prominent African-American celebrities that became stars for life. Lena Holm, no, excuse me, Diane Carroll, Eartha Kitt, Sammy Davis Jr., Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier. Uh, and let's name some of the, the young people that were coming up, like Frankie Lyman and the teenagers who, who revolutionized rock and roll. So they're all coming out of that particular Harlem community in the 50s. And this is when it's not at, at its best. But the roots of what was put down in terms of um, to try to do better and be creative and the arts still flourished. There was an undertone that with the Apollo Theater being the center of black entertainment in the United States. I think they said at one time there were three words around the world that were in English that were, were very well known. 
jazz, the Apollo Theater, and Harlem. You know, Sidney Poitier once said that in the 1930s when he came to Harlem, uh, he had heard about Harlem in the Bahamas. And, and Harlem to him was jazz, Ella Fitzgerald, Duke Ellington, you know, and that because they would get the radio from the Cotton Club, it would broadcast live. And that when he got off the bus <laughs> at 42nd Street, he went to the train station and he asked a well-dressed African-American man, um, which way was it to get to Harlem? And the guy like, you go that way, you turn left, you go down the stairs. He said when he got there and turned left and went down the stairs and he saw these trains going, <laughs> he said if that was the way to get to Harlem, Harlem must have been a hell of a place <laughs> to get to. So there, there's, there's, um, I have pictures of my mother somewhere at the Savoy Ballroom in the 50s with her uh, our sisters. And they're dressed to the nines. You know, you think this was Grace Kelly or... or um, <laughs> Or Lena Horn or somebody. They, they just had this, even growing up, my mother's friends in Harlem would have what was known as cocktail sips. And you were expected to come dressed to the nines. There would be a live band. And uh, they were like formal dinners and dances to introduce uh, young people to uh, how to act in society, you know? <laughs> and uh, th- there was always this uh, thing about uh, uh, being dressed you know, you didn't want to have a, 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 an appearance that was bad. And so fashion amongst African-Americans in dress is very, has been very important. So uh, I studied at Parsons School of Design in Greenwich Village for about, about a year. I studied fashion design. And the two periods that interested me the most were the 20s and the 50s. Uh, and both periods are very, uh, the, 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 the designs and the style are reflective of the music. The jazz in the 20s very much affects the fashion and the rock and roll of the 50s very much uh, reflects fashion in terms of clothing as well as um, hairstyles. So moving along, is there anything I should say? Should I recite? I I just am in awe of the uh, the depth and breadth of your knowledge. And I'm wondering, I know we interviewed you years ago and you were talking about, I think, being a teacher in Queens and you were doing a display for Black History Month and you had this whole basket full of stuff that wouldn't fit in a month, you know, and you've just gone so far and so wide on so many different things. If you could just kind of back up and tell us where all this enthusiasm came from that you're you're just immersed in african-american culture on all different fronts i mean music fashion arts history just tell us a little about yourself uh, just how you got okay i'm a brooklynese okay okay? that means i'm from from brooklyn born and raised well we're not born raised you know we'll we'll uh, buy the bridge and sell it back to you (laughs) I have a um, I have a bachelor a bachelor of science from the college excuse me St Francis College in Brooklyn, and then I have a master's degree from Long Island University in um, urban studies, and the other one in um, education. Okay, um, I have a li- I'm a licensed social studies teacher. Um, I've taught in the city school district for quite a while, as well as uh, there was a time period for about seven years. I was an adjunct professor at the College of St. Rose, which I really loved. So, uh, you know, getting into the d- different areas is fine. I, I, I beg to, to differ when you say 
just African-American culture, because I'm familiar with with um, history in general, being that that's like my background and study. Um, I traveled to the Caribbean extensively. You know, I was in the military, so I lived in Alaska, I lived in Texas, you know. So all of those things play a part into in terms of uh, my interest in traveling and the world and people and cultures and languages and stuff like that. But um, I'm not limited to just that. I, it, it, uh, um, if you would come to one of my musical concerts, you see that I, I'm just as comfortable doing Patsy Cline and 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 James uh, <laughs> and James Taylor as I am doing James Brown and Aretha Franklin. You know, it's good music to me. I don't like to do what I like to do. You know, and people like to hear that. You know. If I, if they get a rush hearing me do um, uh, my way and strangers in the night, they also get a rush with me doing sitting on the dock of the bay and respect. I've never been one to listen to only one thing, you know. Like even if you, even if you even in my wardrobe, I don't have one kind of clothing. I have like you know that that's my personality, you know. So I mean, so living somewhere in New York City, you can be isolated. And surrounded by because they have um, ethnic enclaves. You can live in a, a, an Asian area, an Hispanic area, a Caribbean area, and not and not deal with anybody else if you want to. But my thing was, I get on the train and go somewhere else and just get off and say, okay, yeah, this this is different. You know, what does that taste like? You know, oh yeah, really? Let me go to this concert. You know, it's a Haitian concert. Let me go to um, you know, let me go check this out. Um, Oh, the, the feast of little of San Gennaro cannolis. Oh yeah, great, 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 great. Mazel tov, you know. Uh, St. Patrick's Day on uh, New York City, we have uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day, the, the parade. You see, you be, you think the one in Albany is great, the one on Fifth Avenue. You'll be seeing green for the rest of the year. That's how intense it is. So just that and traveling a lot of other places keeps you from being brainwashed, you know, because you go somewhere, you live like Alaska. And it's 24 hours of sunlight, right? And you start telling you, that's how I get my students' attention. I start telling them about 24 hours of sunlight in Alaska or going to New Orleans and they bury above ground. They get so quiet. You Excuse my French. You could hear a rat piss on cotton. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they want to know, how could you bury people above ground? And how could you get 35 people into a mausoleum? And I'm like, well, listen very carefully and you will hear the tale of poor. No. Yeah. There, there, there's ways to do it, and I, and I, 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 you're, you're, you're enamoring me with stuff, and I'm, I tend to be um, very honored to 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 be a part of this community and be able to share this well. Because with, like you mentioned, my good friends Paul and Mary Liz Stewart, I love them because when I first came here, I met them like in the first month, and I went on a walking tour with them, and they walked around downtown Albany and after walking around with them, I never looked at it the same. You know, did this person live there? That person lived there. And interestingly enough, that, that was 17 years ago and they pointed at the Kenmore Hotel and said that Adam Blake had built it. And I was like, oh, oh. and now I, you know, I've, been, I've been put into his shoes temporarily. So what can I tell you? So what is that like to be put into somebody's shoes, as you say? Do, do you do it partly through, because you mentioned you have this wardrobe. Is it partly through the things that you wear? I mean, do you how to sort of become it for the moment do, that? It has to do with dignity. It has to do with dignity. 
I, I my theater when I when I did plays and I didn't even call them plays. I called them living historical theatrical documentaries. All right. Here's an opportunity to tell this person's story, whether it's Frederick Douglass or um, Anthony. I can't remember his last name. Over in Schenectady, the one that had the first resort in Hawaii. You know, I just happened to stumble upon him. I was looking. I was looking for. Um, I used to do the Juneteenth calendar for my friends over Vail Cemetery, the opening ceremony. And I would tell them about Juneteenth around the world. And you don't believe, nobody would believe that they have celebrate Juneteenth in Hawaii or in Italy or Japan. And one reason is uh, military uh, 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 people are stationed there. So the African-American men on the base uh, celebrate the holiday. So they bring it there, the celebration. And uh, when I stumbled upon Hawaii, they would tell me, um, about great uh, uh, African-Americans in Hawaii. And Anthony Allen, that's Anthony Allen, that's the guy's name, was an escaped slave, uh, late 1789, from Schenectady. Uh, he, he, he got to Boston and got on a maritime ship. Then he wound up in Hawaii, uh, got bought land from Kamehameha. And the land he bought is what's currently Waikiki. You know, and when the missionaries finally arrived, he was the one that helped them. But they wrote about him in their newsletter. And uh, the little boy that he used to take care of his family, which had become a grew up and became a doctor, he read it and he wrote a letter back to him. So I got that primary document of that letter th that he wrote back to him. And I turned the letter into a historical piece which I did at the Schenectady Historical Society, because most people don't know that the first resort in Hawaii was owned by an African-American man. He had a hospital, bowling alley, uh, a bar there, cows, dairy. And, and the missionaries were saying without him, they couldn't have lived because he had all the food and fresh water and he helped them to build and so forth. So I, to I told his story. I came out with a Hawaiian lace and a big straw hat, told everybody aloha, but it, it wasn't, just that the fact that somebody was able to do that and and was a slave in Schenectady managed to get to, to all the way to Hawaii and in Hawaii he's considered a big hero but very few people in Schenectady know about him you know and I'm like why don't I do this you know why don't I why don't I give people an opportunity to open their eyes and and learn about something that's fascinating to me and to that's one of the things that if I ever got the opportunity I'd do a movie about you know I wouldn't be him of course you know but I would definitely do the movie, you know? So have you, uh, you've done plays. You take some of these other than your own monologues that you do, and you mentioned in passing that you've done plays as well. Have you written? Um, yeah, I, I did The World of Zora Neale Hurston. Um, and instead of just having one actress do her, I had 12, 15 actresses from different parts of her life. And each actress was called a Zora Teller. And they told her a story. We did um, Blessed Blues, a jazz suite for Billie Holiday. And we did that at the um, New York State Museum. Okay. I was commissioned for um, by the New York State Museum to do a play. They had uh, an exhibit at the Smithsonian called The 100 Most Influential African Americans. So I'm coming through the lobby and the lady that was doing it, she says, you, we're looking for you. I'm like, what did I steal? What did I? No, I'm just kidding. And so she goes, Miss um, Pat Scott, I'll mention her name because she was a, an angel to me. She said, we, we were doing this thing and we're doing five different scenes from five different periods. We want to tell the history of African-Americans through theater. And we thought about you doing it. So they gave me five different scenes. 
the Emperor Jones, um, Raising in the Sun, uh, the, the, uh, what we call the Great White Hope for Colored Girls, and there was one more I can't, can't think of. Off anyway, so we did, it, and all of the actors and actresses were non-professionals from the community that I recruited. You know, one one young man I knew because he had been um, with me at um, Albany Civic Theater. We did the World of Shakespeare together, and he was Othello, and I was uh, Petruchio for in uh, the Taming of the Shrew. Okay. So I said, if I ever get to do anything, I'm going to get you. And he played the James Earl Jones part in um, The Great White Hope. So it's, it's things like that, this emotion, other things that would happen. Um, uh, long story short, the folks over, uh, if I don't mention them, they're going to kill me. Um, the folks over at Skyler Mansion, they've had me doing a reenactor uh, of, of some of the people that were, were uh, enslaved there. For years, they even measured me. Had somebody come in to measure the dimple so they could get me a proper uh, livery outfit, you know. And 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 uh, Cordell Reeves um, from the Landmark Preservation, he's taken me to Johnstown and Yonkers um, to various various uh, 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 historical sites. We did something with uh, Heidi Heidi Hill and Michelle Bavigliano uh, from Skyler Mansion over at Cralo Cralo Fest. You know, and so this this area, whether people know it or not, is like something that you read about in the textbooks. But so much was going on, like um, with Frederick Douglass and Harry Tubman and all the other stuff that was going on in this area during the Underground Railroad period. Um, so um, I, I just stumbled upon it like a gold mine, you know. And um, I keep going back with my in Alaska. You have those pans that you pan for gold. Mm-hmm. And you just, you know, you get the good dust. I, I never seem to not find something, all right? And so uh, I just, I, I I don't do it for myself. I do it, I do it to, for, to, to, to make sure these people, if I don't do it, they would totally be forgotten and their contributions. And so uh, I don't want to get labeled as, oh, he's a great actor. No, it's not about me. It's about their legacy, what they've done for this community, and then I have a couple other friends like Clifford Oliver, Walter Simpkins, Penny Meacham, who's in Asheville, North Carolina now. And um, we've been carrying on this tradition of Walter's done Moses Viney annually. Cliff Oliver's done uh, Solomon Northrop. Before they did the movie, Cliff Oliver was Solomon Northrop, and he still does reenactments. And all of us have been working together and we had that wonderful thing at uh, Open Institute of History and Art about a year ago. I'll send you the link to it. And they 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 gave us proclamations and from the, uh, the Paul Tonko, Mayor, Mayor Sheehan. And my thing was, why would you not want to, to celebrate these people who were very part of making the capital region what the capital region is? You know, they weren't baseball players and they weren't um, rappers. They were... Um, individuals who prevailed and overcame and they over the the the, the um the expression they use in jamaica is like they overstand you know instead of saying i understand they overstand uh, overstood what it was that they had to do and they did it and they did it well and for them to be forgotten uh is is, is how can i put it 
it's a shame in, in, in its own way. But for me, I have an opportunity through theater to make it a vehicle so that once again, I can enlighten a few people's um, day with the knowledge of it. Okay. Because you, you go away and you say, well, I just, did, I didn't know, you know, not that I didn't want to know, but you know. Well, thank you. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts for our listeners, but I feel like we've been on a wild ride <laughs> just <laughs> trying to grasp all the different you, you, people you, that you hold in you your. Push, you, you push the button and I'll say that, um, the people that I've worked with here in the capital region, the capital region has some of the most. Oh, let me stop. Mayor Gone, Mayor Gone in yep. Altamont. Jim I just want to, Jim Gone. I just want to, if he's listening to this, I just want to thank him um, from the bottom of my heart. I was doing Duke Ellington um, at an Albany Center Gallery uh, event. You know, full regalia, the top hat, the, the silk, you know, the, the cane and everything. And, um, he invited me to come out to Altamont to do something for the seniors and they treated me like wonderfully. And I have never forgot that way. They, 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 they treated me and, and uh, appreciated me. And um, when you sing for people like that um, and someone like Mayor Gone that came along, that was an angel to me that reached out when, when you know, other people were like, you got to have a name. Gotta, he didn't even go there. He just invited me. And I've never forgotten that. That was one of the best best memories that happened. And it, it happened in Altamont, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, and I always bring I always bring roses to give out to all the ladies before I would say because I, my philosophy was how can you sing a love song to a lady without giving her a rose? Oh so my, gosh. my thoughts are I I have warm memories of Altamont and my friends at Altamont and and. Um, my friend, I can't remember her name. She was the secretary there for uh, Parks and Recreation. But she knows who I'm talking about. It, it, it'll come back to me. But I want to thank them all again. And if they're listening, you know, Altamont, you're still number one to me. I love you. <laughs> well, and- thank you. Thank you so much. This has just been splendid. I really appreciate it. Ah, thank you so much. Okay. 